All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, we'll be in verses 1 through 9. We've got to do a little background to catch us up to this passage. Um, we'll do a quick survey of what has come before uh, so that we have a better understanding of what's happening here. Uh, if you remember, God, God spoke the world into being out of nothing. It wasn't as if man came first and then man said, hey, I, I could use some fruit and vegetables. Uh, I, could, I could use some water. No, that's not the way it worked. The Lord provided all that was needed and invited man into what was already a prepared place, right? And he gave Adam and Eve this charge, which some people refer to as the cultural mandate. It comes from Genesis 1, 26 through 31. In essence, it says, be fruitful and multiply. Reproduce my image so that my glory would fill the earth. And he tells them to have dominion. Know that everything that I have created is for your use, your disposal, your uh, ability to be blessed and free to do what I have called you to do. So everything is, is for you to use, except for one thing. And that one thing is, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And many people wonder, well, why in the heck would God put that thing there if he knew it was going to send them sideways? Well, Michael D. Williams postulates, and I think he's right, that the reason that it was there is to always remind them that there is a creator and that they are the created. Now, we wrestle with that, all of us, don't we? We all wrestle with wanting to become the creator. I watched 37 seconds of the movie Transcendence yesterday, and at the moment that I watched it, it was interesting because, I don't know if you know the premise of the movie, obviously I don't, having watched only 37 seconds, but what I picked up on was that Johnny Depp was trying to create this artificial intelligence that would know more than the whole of collective humanity. He was given something like a TED Talk, and one of the people stood up and said, uh, aren't you just trying to create God? And he said, I suppose so. See, and, and in that moment, it was a brilliant moment, I thought, because that's what we're all, that's the project that we're all engaged in in our fallenness, is we are all seeking to be God. And the tree would remind Adam and Eve every day of their life, there's one thing that you cannot touch, one place where you cannot go, and that tells you that you are limited. You are created. Always remember your creator. And what happened? They got to looking at it, and they thought, wow, that's, that's, I know we got all these other trees and all this other fruit, but this one, this one looks like it could make us wise without having to deal with the Lord. Isn't that what we're all trying to do? Don't we all want to be wise? This is why we don't read our Bibles as often as we probably should. This is why we shirk from accountability. This is why we don't want people to really know us because ultimately we want to be wise in our own eyes. Any of you middle schoolers and teenagers, this is you in spades. You want to be wise apart from anything your parents think or do, right? It's just natural. You ought to recognize in yourself, we all went through it. We've all done it. We want to be wise in our own eyes apart from the denomination, apart from the preacher, apart from the session, apart from any sort of oversight. It's just natural to us in our brokenness and our fallenness. And so they take and they eat and their eyes are open and they discover something. Hey, wait a minute, we're naked. 
and they're ashamed. The very thing that the Lord created that was something that would create union between them now became barrier. And they had to sow for themselves these fig leaves that just really didn't cover very much. And the Lord in his grace, though he had to unleash the curse because of their disobedience, judgment had to come. In great grace, he did two things. He said, the seed of the woman will be at war with the seed of the serpent, and the serpent will strike his heel, but he will crush his head. Meaning that the seed of the serpent would not have the final say. And this is very important for us to remember because much of what's in the Abrahamic covenant has to do with the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In fact, you can't understand the book of Genesis at all if you don't keep that intention. And so he gave them that promise, and then he made further clothing for them to cover them rightly. Some argue that it was probably the first sacrifice, that God himself actually offered the first sacrifice. The problem was they had to be cast east of Eden. And life east of Eden was not very good, was it? Remember, straight away, she has a child that she thinks is the promised child. His name is Cain. And he and Abel make their offering before the Lord, and the Lord says, Abel's offering is good. Cain, yours, where's the good stuff? You brought me, you brought me the leftovers. And Cain figures, well, I, I got a solution. Instead of being obedient, let me be wise in my own eyes. Because if I kill Abel, then comparatively, God has to take what I have to offer because there's nothing else to be offered, right? Is that how it works? Isn't this what we do? Isn't this how we treat other people sometimes who we think are better than us? We tear them down. Instead of actually trying to rise up and build ourselves up, we spend a bunch of time ripping them down trying to say, get on my level. It's just us in the fall, isn't it? So he kills Abel. And Abel's blood cries out from the ground, and he is cast further east of Eden. And the story goes on, and then there comes a time when the, the sons of God marry the sons of women. And I don't have a lot of time to unpack that except to compare it to the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Some people will try to make that into something more than what it really is, and that's all it really is, is that the seed, the, the seed of the woman mixed with the seed of, of of the serpent, and it started to unhinge everything and mean that there would be no future redemption. There was one family that was preserved through the flood, much like baptism, Noah and his family. And if you remember in Genesis 9, he's given the same cultural mandate that Adam and Eve are given in Genesis 1. I told you the same thing. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. I will be with you. I will provide. Remember, Noah planted a vineyard and he got crazy. It was probably a New Year's Eve type party. Wound up naked again. Interesting that that keeps coming up. And his son, instead of covering him, laughs and tells his brothers. And the curse of the Lord falls upon him. And from him will come the lineage of Canaan, the seed of the serpent. The other two brothers, Shem and Japheth, will come the seed of the woman. Shem in particular. And so we see that the fall just keeps kind of roiling and unfolding. And then we find ourselves at this plain of Shinar. And everybody says, look, instead of, instead of doing what God said, instead of doing the cultural mandate, which is to fill the earth with his glory, I like it right here. It's really nice in Shinar. We can do our own thing. And in fact, I got a great idea. Let's build a ziggurat or a tower, as it were, and we can control when God shows up, right? We control access to him. We control his access to us. 
He can't just be messing around telling us what to do all the time. We'll go and tell him when we want something. Think about it. The height of pride. Where was the creator-creature distinction in all of that? And the Lord had to act in judgment. And he struck them and he confused their ability to communicate with one another and he scattered them. Interesting. Saying, my plan continues. And that, all of that brings us to Abram, who is in the lineage of Shem, who is at this juncture where we're going to encounter him in the story. He's 75, and his wife, Sarai, is barren. That's pretty important, isn't it, to the story? Because if the story is about the seed of the woman filling the earth for the glory of the Lord and, and ultimately the seed of the serpent being cast out, why in the world would the promise begin with a barren woman? And a 75-year-old man who didn't even know who the Lord was, who lived essentially in what is modern-day Iran or Iraq, an Ur of the Chaldeans. This pagan who's just kind of doing his own thing, living his own life. So God comes to this man who doesn't know him, and he calls him. He, just as he did in creation, just as he did uh, in the flood, just as he does in the virgin conception, he speaks first. And man is called to respond. So that sets us up for where we are. And, and, and as it is, Abram is not exactly, again, a, a character that we would look to prior to his becoming part of the covenant as someone we would put up as a model of faith. He worshiped household gods. He was a pagan. He, he did his own thing. He was just like every other fallen man until God got a hold of him. So, as we begin this morning, listen to what John Calvin says in his commentary on Genesis. He says, this calling of Abram is a signal instance of the gratuitous mercy of God. Had Abram been beforehand with God by any merit of works? Had Abram come to him or conciliated his favor? Nay, we must, ne we must ever recall to mind that he was plunged in the filth of idolatry. And now, God freely stretches forth his hand to bring back the wanderer. He deigns to open his sacred mouth that he show to one, deceived by Satan's wiles, the way of salvation. See, it begins with God's love for one of his created beings, and he pursues that one. But what's interesting is what happens after that one comes, what it means for the rest of the world. This is what I want you to get, the key truth from this sermon this morning, is that God's mission is to redeem and restore his people from sin and death to abundance of life by faith alone, as provided and nourished by his promises and presence. Let me read that again. God's mission is to redeem and restore his people from sin and death to abundance of life by faith alone, as provided and nourished by his promises and presence. We will get this story way out of order if we approach it like this. Now, when God says go, you best go. As God called Abram, is he calling you? No, that's not the primary point of this passage in any way, shape, or form. And if you get that out of it, come talk to me because that's not it. Now, that's not to say that that's not a part of it in some aspect, but it's not the primary part. Remember what he says when he says, we loved because who loved first? 
God did. We are faithful because he was faithful first. We have hope because he first gave us hope. We forgive because we have been forgiven. You understand? It is incredibly important as we talk about the Abrahamic covenant, as we look at missions, as we look to have our hearts developed for the nations, that we not let it slide into moral therapeutic deism or legalism. This is not what that's about. What I hope you will see more than anything is that God so loved you that he began pursuing you thousands of years ago. And he's inviting you into the single greatest story ever told. And so that should move us to want to share that with other people because if they don't have it, what do they have? And so as we step into this text, keep those things in mind. Let's first look at verses one through three, which is the heart of the text. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a couple things we need to hash out as we look at this. Notice again that it is God who speaks first. And in asking Abram to go, we need to understand, because Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 4 when he talks about that it was, it was not by, by, by deeds that Abram was counted righteous. It's because of his faith. And you may say, well... How much faith was there? Well, listen for a second. In this culture, to give up, essentially what he's asking him to do, give up your inheritance. His father, Terah, is not yet dead. So he's saying, walk away from all that your earthly father has for you. You are going to lose the land that, would, that could possibly preserve you and your family. That's number one. Number two, he's asking him to walk away from his lineage, meaning he will have no family to help him. This isn't like if, if you grew up in Suwannee and you moved to Macon uh, and you could still go back and see your family. No, this is, he will lose everything. There is no going back where the Lord is calling him to. There's no short route to, and he will know no one there. And so he has a barren wife. What kids are going to take care of him? So he's being asked to walk away from everything that is sure and that would protect him in that culture. So the magnitude of faith that is exhibited here is incredible because if it doesn't go the way the Lord says it's going to go, it is going to be a death sentence for Abram and Sarah. You may say, well, at 75, I mean, come on. Well, no, he lived a little bit longer than that. In fact, his father lived to be like 205. So he had a few years yet ahead of him. And I doubt that he wanted to move to some place and get killed by the locals. And notice that the Lord doesn't yet tell him where he's calling him to go. He's going to. And eventually it's going to be the land of Canaan, where the seed of the serpent slithers about in full view. Where pagan gods are celebrated in all the high places. So Abram is being asked to walk away from an awful lot and place his faith, his life, 
his wife's life in the hands of someone that he's just met. And so God goes on to tell him, he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Again, remember, he's got a barren wife. And nation is a pretty distinct term here. I mean, it, it, it's not just that he's going to, he didn't tell him, I'm going to make a, a family. No, he said a nation. So what's going to rise from you is something that will have borders and boundaries and law and all of these things. There's a lot that is, that is meant within that when he says, I will make of you a great nation. He says, I will bless you. Now, I love what this term bless actually means because it's very consistent with the New Testament concept that I've been wrestling with for quite some time. To bless means to actually grant someone abundance of life. That means that they can flourish. They have the ability to provide for themselves. They have the ability to provide for their families. They have the ability to provide for others. They have the full ability to live in such a way as if almost they were in Eden. See, the Lord says, I am going to give you the abundant life. Now, what's interesting is what did Christ say that he came to give us? Got to be at least one of you in here that knows that. Life and life more abundant, I came to bless you. So he's promising Abraham a flourishing that he could not know on his own. And then he goes on to tell him, and it's going to be that I bless you so that you can then become a blessing to others. This is not in singularity. This is not something that happens in a vacuum. It is not a bushel that you will put under a lampstand. It is something that you will let shine and will have an impact on everyone who lives around you, every neighbor that you have. What an awesome thing that he is being offered. And he even says, not only that, but I will bless those who bless you. And that seed of the serpent, when it comes to dishonor you, I will curse it. I will protect you. This will come to pass. It is my promise. See, the Lord, again and again, notice how many times he says, I will. I will. Not you will, but I will. And so straight away, what we see as part of the Abrahamic covenant is that the Lord who is sovereign is the one who lays the firm foundation on which all faith must rise. There is no faith that comes by your effort, none whatsoever. You don't have the ability, I don't have the ability to do it. It is only because God has done first and God has been faithful and God has kept his promises that we in any way, shape, or form can be obedient. That is my greatest hope for us here at Christ Community Church is that we would recognize how good God was first and that what we desire to do is be obedient as a result of that. So often I think we take for granted what it is truly that God has done. Because again, the mundanity of every, everyday life, the truth of Ecclesiastes as the sun rises and falls, as the dishes mount and go away, as the laundry piles up and gets put away, and everything just seems to be just mundane and ordinary. And yet, do you know how blessed you are? Do you have any idea how the ability to do those things and the freedom that you're able to do them and the redemption that you're able to do them, what a beauty those things are. I'm not saying you need to like it because I don't either in terms of doing dishes or laundry or yard work. 
I've been known to do a little bit of those things once in a while. And so, so I get that. I'm not saying you should whistle while you work and all that kind of nonsense and pull yourself up. What I am saying is recognize that what you have been given life and the abundance in which it is, learn how to recognize where God is breaking through and blessing you with all that you have so that you could be a blessing to others. It's not just about us. But first, before we can ever be a blessing to others, you will never go out and minister to your neighbors. You will never minister to those you work with. You will never love your church family well if you don't first understand, appreciate, and worship what God has done for you. You just won't. And I want to apologize to you if in any of the preaching, because I can be a little bit prophetic and I can lean forward a little bit sometimes. And as we've come up with a term, I'll slip jab you every now and again. Like you think I'm kind of going one way and I'm like, you don't evangelize enough. Well, <laughs> well, I don't want you to ever, ever again, if, if it's possible, hear that out of sequence. I say those things to you because I know what God has done for us. I know how much he loves us. I know what, he, I, I, I really don't, let's be honest. I don't know the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice for us, but I know it was big and it's bigger than anything I will ever do. And it is worthy of us sharing that story. It's worthy of us loving the unlovely because we were unlovely and he loved us first. And so let's, all, let's, let's always strive to keep it in right sequence, that we recognize that our obedience only rises from our worship. This is why we place so much emphasis on the corporate nature of worship, our gathering together. This should help us significantly see the beauty of the Lord our God so that throughout the week we could be obedient in a manner that is life and life more abundant. And it is life giving to all around us, amen? We, didn't, we just need a weekly refresher because we live in a fallen world, don't we? Listen to what William J. Dumbrell, Old Testament scholar, says of this. He says, what is being offered in these few verses, being Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is a theological blueprint for the redemptive history of the world now set in train by the call of Abram. Notice this is God offering redemption on the heels of a judgment that was struck on the plain of Shinar. And if you notice this, these things are about bringing all of those things back together, about that judgment would not have the final say that the Lord would, that the people would not remain scattered and absent of family and absent of the ability to communicate with one another, but the Lord would bring it all back together and it would be a blessing to the entire world. Don't miss that the Abrahamic covenant is the, is the removal of the effects of judgment in the fall. And so the Lord again is good. So let me ask you, how has the Lord blessed you? Meaning, given you the power to live an abundant and effective life. My hope is that every time we would hear the word blessing, that we would, we would not trump it down, that we would instead see it for the high calling of what it is, that it is the calling to the abundant life, the provision of everything we would need to live the effective and abundant life. So how has the Lord blessed you? And that's something you probably need to think about over the Lord's day and really kind of consider and talk about together as a family. It's a great thing to use in family worship for today. It's a great question to return to frequently on the Lord's day or Sabbath. So how has the Lord blessed you? And as a result, how has your being blessed affected those around you?
Now, sometimes this is hard to measure, isn't it? Sometimes it's something that occurs over years and years and years. It'll appear fallow for a season. Many of you who are parents have experienced this, especially if your kids are past the teen years, as mine are. One of the greatest blessings that we have received, our daughter has been home, she'll be returning to Tallahassee today, I think and hope, um, is hearing her say that, hey, all that stuff you said that you thought I didn't listen to, I know it's true. I know now it's true. And the other night, and, and here's how you know it's, it's probably legitimate because she didn't ask for anything afterwards, but she said, she said, Dad, have you ever read a passage and it made you shiver? I said, yeah, sweetheart, I have. She said, well, I just read 2 Corinthians 1.9 where it talks about essentially that we were fearing of death, but it was the Lord who delivered us. She said, it just made me shiver because how many times have I put myself at the crosshairs, essentially, and he's delivered. I want to give you a plug nickel for all the, the speeches I've given, as you probably know, I can give them. In fact, my daughter used to say, just whip me. I don't want a speech. I'd rather take a beating. And I never, I never honored her in that. I kept going with the speech until she glazed over and passed out. And so, <laughs> as I do with some of you. Uh, and so, but, but it's a beautiful thing to see that if you'd asked me three years ago, what do you think of the seed that you've scattered? I'd have said, rocky ground. Rocky ground. Why? Because I am a faithless wretch. The word does not return void. It just doesn't. And I'm not guaranteeing that because I scattered it, she would be saved, but why didn't I at least give it an either or? But the Lord was faithful and continues to be faithful to pursue my daughter after it seems like I probably had given up. Praise God that he is what I am not, the creator and not the fallible created. Let's turn back to the text, look at verses four through six. So after God has said all of these things that he will do, he has declared all of these promises, notice what Abram does. So Abram questioned him extensively and refused to go until he had assurance. Now what it says? That what your Bible says? That's not a good translation, by the way, because it's not what it says. It says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. He was a cousin. Abram was 75 years old. And when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The journey from Haran to Canaan was about 500 miles, and with a caravan his size, it would have taken about two months for them to get there. So it wasn't an easy production, um, but, uh, but they did it. Notice that Abram obeyed as the Lord said for him to do. And how many times do we, after God has given us all these promises, after God has made it so clear that he loves us, do we say, but wait, God, but, but wait a minute, God. Hang on a second, I think you've got the wrong guy. You should probably check out my brother. He's better at speaking. Sound familiar? Yeah, so we, we, we do those things, don't we? we? We question, whereas the Lord says, no, I love you. 
Never doubt that. When I say go, go, because it'll be the best thing you ever did. That's where abundance of life is, is in my presence. Mo Leverett uh, has a statement. He says, the safest place for any of us to be is God's will. Wherever he tells you to go, go. It'll be the safest place you ever went. And yet we all the time are trying to construct our own safety and security, aren't we? So when God says go, Abram goes and he takes his family. And he goes to this place called Canaan, which is the land inhabited by the cursed sons of Ham, which essentially is the seed of the serpent. And he goes to a place called the Oaks of Moray. Moray just means teaching. It probably would have been a high place and it would have been known given that it had its own name because that's where they would have worshiped their pagan gods. Now, it's interesting that God called him to the place where they worshiped, isn't it? What do you think God is doing? He's declaring, no, this is where I speak, not them. So he calls Abram to this place where the pagan gods meet, and he is going to actually meet Abram there in this beautiful moment. Before we get there, listen to what uh, Old Testament scholar and archaeologist John D. Currid says about this. He says, Abram's destination is the land of Canaan. There is an irony about this because Canaan was apparently the region settled by the descendants of Canaan, the cursed son of Ham. God has decided to bring the seed of the woman right into the midst of the seed of the serpent and by doing that will preserve his people. So has the Lord ever called you to a difficult place? Has the Lord ever asked you to get up and go on something and, and as you got there, you thought, I wish I'd have thought about this. I wish I'd have put more, maybe I should have prayed more. Maybe I should have had better faith. Maybe this is judgment. Forgetting that the Lord loves you. God doesn't ever call anybody someplace to judge them, by the way. He just does it on the spot. So if he's calling you somewhere, it's because he loves you not because he can't take care of you right there. And so, so I remember when we, uh, when we moved to Macon, um, I had gone to Mercer for one whole quarter back when there was the quarter system. For those of you who remember the quarter system, uh, I lasted one whole quarter and I quit, dropped out because uh, I was a, a poor white trash in a rich white kid's school. And, uh, and nothing against them. It was as much me as it was anything on their part. And I thought Sherman should have burned Macon flat to the ground and left it a parking lot, an anathema to all of society. And so when the Lord made it clear that we were going back, I thought, Susan, what have you done? Couldn't have been me, by the way. I just wondered. I thought, oh, no, I don't want to go back. In fact, I didn't trust the Lord, to be honest with you. I, I drove for six months from Jonesboro to Macon. Now, I don't know if any of you remember a time when they repaved 75 which is awesome when you're driving because nobody seems to understand the dynamics of you know, going down to one lane. Everybody just tries to fight for it, right? Instead of everybody just doing 75 in a single file line. I don't know. Uh, but it would always cause these huge traffic jams and I would be on the road for three hours a day. Hour and a half there, hour and a half back and work 10. Does that sound like the abundant life to you? <laughs> it didn't to me either. And so I said, all right, Lord, fine. We'll move down there. And we did. And we weren't down there hardly a day or two. And, uh, and, and I, I saw this really black cloud over from my office, which was in downtown Macon. I could see this black cloud over the region where, I, where we currently lived. And I wondered, that don't look good. 
It didn't. And I got home, and all my neighbors were in the yard, and I thought they were being sweet. They'd just come to visit us. No, they were looking at the tree that was impaling my roof that drove a truss through my bedroom wall and destroyed my roof. Now, prior to that as well, Susan was pregnant, and uh, we lost that child. I remember standing in the yard as the rain was falling. I'm trying to figure out what to do now. I said, Lord, you could have killed me in Jonesboro. You didn't have to drag me all the way down here for judgment. But that wasn't it at all. The Lord brought us to make and to show us something of himself that we could not see in Jonesboro and to give us the opportunity to be a blessing to others in a way that we were never going to be in Jonesboro. And it took me a couple of years to figure that out. And I want to encourage you too, don't take as long as I did to figure it out, but know that whenever the Lord calls you, wherever he calls you, whatever the, whichever way the journey goes, because he is sovereign and because he loves you and because he loves the nations, it will always, always, always be for your good. This is incredibly important for those of you who are middle schoolers, high schoolers, and if you're in college, because you have so many roads kind of leading out of where you currently are, right? There's so many options. You've got more options now than you'll ever have in your life, and it's very difficult sometimes to figure out which one is the best one. Well, the best one is always the one that God points to. The best one is always where you will experience the presence of the Lord in greater measure than any other. For those of you who are parents and watch your children find winding roads, this is good news to you too, because he's there too isn't he? He is leading and guiding even there. And so may we always remember the God who called Abram, who gave the Abrahamic covenant, who said his longing is to bless and give us abundance of life and has given it to us in Christ and in the work of the Spirit that he who is sovereign over all those things, he loves us in all of those places. Amen? And what would we do if he weren't? So if the Lord has ever called you to a difficult place, be on the lookout for him because he's there. He's gone before you. Turn back to the text. Let's look at verses seven through nine as we close out. It says, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar for the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So what's beautiful about this is the Lord calls him to this foreign land that is filled with people who are probably gonna hate him and hate the seed that's going to come from him and try to destroy the very blessing that the Lord has promised him with. And the Lord shows up. He meets him there. And Abram's response is to build an altar, and he does it everywhere he goes. What do you think's happening here? The Lord is declaring to the people of Canaan, this land is mine. Your foreign gods cannot save you. Your foreign gods cannot bless you. Only I can. Listen to what Andrew Fuller who Charles Spurgeon loved dearly, says about this passage. He says, one sees here the difference between the conduct of the men of this world and that of the Lord's servant. The former no sooner find a fruitful plain than they fall to building a city and a tower to perpetuate their fame. The first concern of the latter is to raise an altar to God. It was thus that the new world was consecrated by Noah and now the land of promise by Abram. 
what do you declare first? What is your greatest concern as you are involved in anything? Is it to make sure that your name is known or that the Lord's name is known? Is it your greatest concern what people think of you or what they think of the Lord? Is your greatest concern that they know of your obedience and your promises that you won't keep, by the way? Or to know of the faithfulness and the promises and the endurance and the perseverance of the Lord our God who pursues us from the edges of hell to the gates of heaven? So how has the Lord revealed himself to you in the places that he called you? Well, in Macon, the Lord revealed himself in so many magnificent ways. It is just unbelievable. And he's been faithful to do it here too. As many of you know, it wasn't exactly to Kennesaw that I would have chosen necessarily to come personally, not because I don't love you, but I'm just, I don't, I'm culturally different in many respects. And so the Lord has been so gracious and been so faithful, and I've seen him move and work so beautifully that I'll, I'll never be the same. And my hope is that it will also be a blessing to others as well. Hopefully my presence is not, not that, uh, but I'm all the time thinking about, Lord, how can we love others well so that you are magnified and high and lifted up? How is it more about what you will accomplish than I will ever accomplish? Because what I will accomplish will be forgotten in no time flat. My hope is that we would all share the same. That we would recognize that it is the Lord who acts first. It is the Lord's faithfulness that allows us to be faithful. So the three things that we should learn from this text are one, that God desires to redeem and restore his people from sin and death to abundance of life. That is so critical. The Lord wants abundance of life for you. This is so critical for all of our children to understand because for so many of our children, all they kind of get out of it is rules and regulations and God just wants to ruin our lives and not let us watch Netflix or whatever it is. No, he doesn't. No, what he wants is for you to be in community with him where you will find the greatest wellspring of life you have ever known. Some of you have tried other wellsprings. Tell me, how does death taste to you? Second, God's promises provide for and nourish obedience and faith. Your obedience doesn't rise from your strength. It rises from his. God is with us on the journey. That's really important. Notice he showed up at the Oaks of Moray when he called Abram there in a foreign land filled with pagan gods. The Lord showed up. Listen to what Christopher J.H. Wright says in concluding. He says, the call of Abram is the beginning of God's answer to the evil of human hearts, the strife of nations, and the groaning of brokenness of his whole creation. It is the beginning of the mission of God and the mission of God's people. I said a couple of weeks ago that the Abrahamic covenant is truly the heart of the Reformed faith, not total depravity, not predestination. At the heart of the Reformed faith, all those things actually come out of that. They rise up out of God's mission. The heart of the Reformed faith is that God is a covenant God who is faithful and keeps his promises and he loves the nations. If you want to declare yourself Reformed, it better be in that vein. Anything else? 
is a distortion of the seed of the serpent. I know that's strong, but I mean it. So as we close out this morning, my hope is that you'll take time today and ask the Lord, how has he blessed you? And how are you being a blessing to others? Ask the Lord, where has he called you to and what, what does he have for you there? Seek him, give praise to him for all of his goodness and all of the ways in which he has shown up and been present with you in the dark places. Because it is uniquely there that you see him in ways that you can't see him anywhere else. Praise God that he leads us the way that he does. Let's pray.